You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. One guest this week, a guest that uh, you are quite familiar with, certainly if you listen to this podcast. Chris Fowler is the lead play-by-play broadcaster for ESPN when it comes to their college football content. You've certainly heard him on championship games, as well as the college football playoff semifinals and the ABC Saturday Game of the Week He's also ESPN's lead tennis caller, and you have heard his voice when it comes to the U.S. Open, Wimbledon, Australia, etc. His new assignment will be on ESPN's NFL team, the second NFL team behind the Buck Aikman team, where he will be working with Dan Orlovsky and Lewis Riddick on the Monday Night Football doubleheader. We had a great conversation just on uh, those topics as well as uh, a couple other things, Chris is a uh, he's long been a fan of global sports and the Olympics, and uh, and always an interesting guy to speak with. So Chris Fowler coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, like I said, uh, my guest really doesn't need much of an introduction. Chris Fowler has been one of the iconic voices for ESPN when it comes to play-by-play. You've heard him for years when it comes to their college football coverage, first on game day. And uh, obviously now on the ABC Saturday night game with Kirk Herbstreet, as well as the college football playoffs. He is uh, ESPN's lead tennis voice. And uh, he has a very busy schedule coming up regarding the U.S. Open, as well as college football assignments. And then he will head to the NFL because he is part of the new Dan Orlovsky-Lewis Riddick team. And with that, I am pleased to be joined by Chris Fowler of ESPN. Thank you, Richard. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's been a little bit, Chris. I'm glad to catch up with you. Okay, so let's start with tennis. Well, obviously, eventually for people um, so that they're listening, we'll get into college football and we'll get into the NFL. But I don't know if I've ever asked you this, but what, what is the week before the U.S. Open like for you? Like, what's how's your preparation? Uh, knowing you, you love tennis so much, you're probably watching the qualities, but like, what what is the preparation for you for the U.S. Open? It's challenging. This is the time of year when I'm reminded how grateful I am to have this gig because it's like the nexus of my two favorite sports, which are football and tennis, and both require preparation, very different kinds of preparation. Um, Fortunately, you know, when you call matches in tennis, your your preparation is focused on two players. When I used to have to host the coverage, you know, you think about that, it's 128 draw times two, and you're looking at every plot line in the sport and who might emerge and all the dark horses and all the things that come into play as you approach a grand slam, my focus is different when you call matches because I know I'm going to be calling people like Djokovic and Alcaraz and Sviatek and Coco Goff. And the, the, the cast of characters you're concerned about is much smaller, makes preparation easier. But I'm watching Canada and Cincinnati. I've, I've got the tennis channel on a lot here in the office as I do football stuff because I enjoy I enjoy watching tennis and I have since I'm 10 years old. So it doesn't feel like work to prepare for the open. One of the things I've seen watching ESPN's coverage over the years, it's very, very clear that whether it's, uh, you know, Chris Everett, uh, one of the McEnroe's, Darren Cahill, like name your analyst, they're within the sport. They, they know the players, they see the players in many cases. Sometimes they may even have involvement with the players as a conversation for another day, but I never really have a sense of like how often, someone in your position interacts with players. Like, do you ever um, get, you know, in the way like for your college football, the NFL, you would have production meetings with a, with an, with a coach or a player. Like, do you ever get a sit down with Djokovic or Alcaraz where you, Chris Fowler can get to know them a little bit as opposed to just watching them on the court? 
It's challenging because the mechanisms in tennis don't make it easy for you to gain access to these global superstars because people from all countries want that. Now, ESPN has a lot of weight in the sport. Certainly when it comes to the U.S. Open as a host broadcaster, we have a lot more uh, weight with USTA than we do anywhere else. But I feel pretty good about what Wimbledon does to help us. The problem, Richard, is we lost the rights to the ATP and the WTA events on tour. And that used to provide me a great platform. Like My preparation for the Open was to call the Masters in Canada and then go to Cincinnati, where it's men and women combined. And Oh, you'd have a lot of face time. Then you would hang in the lounge and you'd see the player every day because that's the rhythm of those tournaments. And you'd see the coaches and you'd see the agents and you could watch a practice. You've got a lot of reps looking at, let's say, Federer or Nadal or Murray or Serena leading into the U.S. Open. You have a real feel for how their summer has gone. We don't have that anymore. I'm watching on TV. It's not the same. So I think all of the people or most of the people in our tennis team, you mentioned some folks who do some coaching and, and folks who work for other places and are sort of more on tour on a weekly basis. If I want to go to a tennis tournament, I'm flying myself there and getting a credential and trying to have the same access I had before. It's much tougher. And I, that goes for Indian Wells in Miami. We used to do four big events in North America in between the majors. And I, I struggle, man, because I want to do the same quality a broadcast now as I did then, but you have less access. So you do feel like you're a little bit, you know, hamstrung in, in terms of trying to get what you're describing. But, and, and that problem is not for the legends. Like I know Novak very well. We've had many sit downs. Alcaraz, you have to work because he's got layers. Uh, I did call him winning the open. I was around him in New York. I tried to take opportunities I can to see him. He, he put his hand through the window of our booth at Wimbledon after winning the title, which was an amazing thing. But it's harder and harder to get connected with the younger guys and women because you don't have the same access. And I, you, you don't ever want to go into it thinking, well, I can't do the same job in 23 than I did in 19. That sucks to, to, to sort of regress that way. But it's it's more and more challenging. The, you know, the, the, the men's side still has Novak as the standard bearer. And obviously, Alcaraz looks like he's, if he stays healthy, he's going to be an all-timer. I actually find myself more interested in the women's side right now because um, Svantec, obviously, number one, great player, Hall of Famer. But behind her, it's kind of like interesting. Like like the number two, number three player uh, can change. You know, maybe one week it feels like it's Sabalenka, the next week it feels like it's Jessica Bagula. So I find that really, really interesting. And I wonder, if just given your passion for this sport, um, in the post-Serena era, where do you see the women's tournament right now? Or the I should say the women's tour right now. Yeah, I mean, maybe in, in an era when there is no no dominant player. Sviatek looks like she's on course, but, you know, she's still got holes in her game. It doesn't translate to dominance on all surfaces. They were trying to build up the big three in women's tennis. I was promoted by the WTA and, and picked up by some of the media. You know, when you, when you add Rabakina and Sabalenka to her, but I don't think – and they've been consistent on tour – I don't think anybody out there really sees them as far superior or set apart because of players you mentioned. You know, Pagula can win. You've got the the, the, the really surprising winners of these Grand Slams where uh, uh, someone goes on a magical seven-match run, and now they're a major winner. But how do they respond? How do they back it up? How do they stay healthy? And that's almost been the norm in women's tennis. You could, you know – people breaking through and, and winning these titles, but then being unable to sustain it, you really see how hard it is to win consistently at the top of the game, how people like Serena and, of course, the legends on the men's side made it look easy. And it's so challenging and difficult to handle the wear and tear of the tour mentally and physically that, that few have been able to do it. Um, Sviatek is the best position to be that, that person on the poster, but they don't really know who to put on the poster right now. You go to Wimbledon and, you know, Coco Goff is, is on the Wimbledon wall of, of of fame there, along with, you know, people like Martina and Billie G and Steffi. And, and she hasn't won a major yet. So you're looking for players to have the potential to break through. And I think Coco's central to this conversation because she's got the kind of talent that when you watch her play, the conversation quickly goes, how much can she do? How, how many can she win? And yet, um, you know, she's... She sort of plateaued and tried to break through, and I think maybe doing that right now. So you're right; it's an interesting time. You show up never knowing what you're going to see on the day, um, 
And, and I think we go to the open the same way. I mean, it, it's interesting to have, I mean, sometimes you say, well, it doesn't can win it. And then someone who's not in the top 12, you would have thought of wins a tournament. You know, Rabak and Avendrusa, these people are not, they wouldn't have been top of mind at all. Uh, but they go on a run and, and there they are. And suddenly they're a major winner. And, and you find yourself in a very different position from what we've been in recent years, which is not documenting these ledges, but introducing people to those who are lifting a trophy in a major, which is uh, quite interesting. Yeah. Breakpoint has me, uh, I'm, I think, uh, secretly rooting for Anstra Boer. I really would like to see her uh, break there. She's just I think we would too. I, mean, I think she's, she's compelling. She's a pioneer and she's got that sort of, she, she's shown the human frailty of not quite being ready for the moment when she's got in major finals and then thinking that she's ready and having another opportunity, another opportunity, and, and, and just sort of getting in her own way, which I think is very compelling. And it's a very big part of tennis players developing growth is, is to come through that. And, and, and I'm hoping she does. I think she's, she's extremely likable, not just um, to the media, but to her peers, and and obviously has, has a great story to tell. Um, a couple more things in tennis, real quick. The the you you have had to at times call matches via a monitor. That is a challenge to me, um, especially given that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you laugh because it's true. The um, you know you've been at these palaces, these tennis cathedrals, live, so you're there. You get the feel of it. You get the smell of it. All et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have to call a matchup up in a sterile room monitor. Uh, what's that been like? Because obviously, I know it's not. It's not. I know some. It's the reality in some ways now in sports television at times, but it's certainly not ideal. No, it's not ideal for a lot of reasons. But I also think that we're fortunate. I mean, not very often have I had to do that. The Australian Open um, cover covering from Connecticut uh, for for various reasons. COVID was the initial reason. We're hopeful to get back down there. But but most of the times I'm you know I'm I'm in front of the court. We we do call matches off monitors at places like Wimbledon, the US Open, when they're happening away from a place where we have a booth. That that just happens. Um, you make the best of it. I think it helps when you've been in those arenas a lot. Like we call matches from 16 time zones away uh, at the Australian Open. I've been on Rod Laver Arena hundreds of times. I know what it feels like. I know I I, I feel empathetic for broadcasters that haven't been to those places and they're trying to look at a little screen and convey something to a viewer that's impossible to convey from long, long distance. There's just nothing like seeing tennis live and describing it. Um, even though you use the monitor a lot in a broadcast, in Wimbledon, in our bunker position, you know, you're using the monitor a lot in any match. But you're bouncing your eyes from the court to the monitor just because of the angle and you're trying to do the best job you can of, of amplifying what viewers are seeing on the screen. But that's not the same thing as being many, many hours away from a place. It, and it, it's not fun for anybody. I mean, I think of like Nadal's comeback against Medvedev at the Australian Open final, um, you know, from two sets down. He's dead. He's on the canvas. It's like Hulk Hogan. And he raises a finger and he gets up and he comes back and he wins. And, and having a feel for Rafa and him being, I think, the favorite athlete that I've ever covered in any sport John and Patrick and I were, were in that same room calling that. Had we been in Rod Laver Arena, it's it's a life memory. It's something I would never have forgotten because you saw an incredible piece of tennis history. A champion coming from impossible odds to pull one out and his reaction to that, knowing what it meant and what it meant in the overall chase for the major title goat conversation, you know. And yet you were, you know, it was like five o'clock in the morning in Connecticut in a little room. So the experience is far different, but you do your best to still bring it home to the customer because ultimately they don't care what disadvantages you have. They just want you to document the match for them. Last one for me, and maybe it's impossible for you to choose. Um, you know, you just came off calling this epic Djokovic uh, Alcaraz match, um, but you have um, chronicled, uh, I would argue, the greatest era in the history of men's tennis, perhaps in tennis. Uh, uh, alone with Rafa, Roger, and Novak. Is there a particular match for you uh, that you have called that stands out above uh, what has been obviously a career of calling some epic all-time matches? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's hard to pick a couple because, as you mentioned, we've been so lucky to have these three giants and men's tennis pushing each other, to have Serena chasing history. Um, you know, I, I mean, there, there are incredibly memorable matches for different reasons. I mean, I'll never forget the Serena Osaka U.S. Open final and all that went into that. That's a piece of the sport that will live forever in the hearts and minds of 
a lot of Serena fans. Um, on the men's side, you know, five hours and 53 minutes, Djokovic and, and Al turning each other inside out in Melbourne in an era when they wanted um, slower courts and longer matches. They, I think we'll never see anything like that again. I think the Murray winning Wimbledon, Richard, was was a straight set win over Djokovic, but just seeing the 70-plus year drought of British male champions and the center court in, a, in a, that beautiful cathedral of tennis where no one was breathing for about three hours, especially not in the last set. I mean, that that was a moment that I'm as proud of the broadcast we did too, but that was something that you 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 realize that you're watching a piece of history in front of your eyes and you just want to do it justice. And, and I think the match you mentioned, I mean, I think the, had Djokovic won that Wimbledon final against Alcaraz, I think, okay, Novak's pushed again, but he came through. What you saw at Wimbledon this year was something very different. It was an all-time great, um, ripping, ripping the trophy out of Djokovic's hands because he surrenders nothing. And the way that he did it, if you know tennis, you appreciate the way Alcaraz won that match. Novak gave nothing. And the kid goes out and hits six first serves in the final game. Novak gets six returns in play. He chokes a drop shot, Alcaraz, in the first point of that game. Plays another one in the second point. Nobody does that. And so you realize you're not just seeing a, 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 an exciting match. You're seeing the the the, the confirmation of a, of a young player's greatness to beat Djokovic in that way at Wimbledon. He hadn't lost in that court 10 years. That outcome made the match more impactful, I think, than just what was going on, the high level of play over five sets, et cetera. We've seen Nadal and Federer, I mean, play some amazing matches. They've had a great privilege. You know, when, when Djokovic saves two championship points and beats Roger at Wimbledon, those matches are unforgettable. It's hard to name one or two, but I think what we just saw because of what it meant, it was like Nadal Federer in 08 where Rafa took away Rogers Wimbledon trophy on the spot there and ushered in something different in the sport. I think Alcaraz is win. I can't wait to see what happens at the open, but you know, that was a moment. He just reached and took it away from him and nobody's been able to do that. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. Let's uh let's move segue to college football. Um at this point you would absolutely have I would think your first couple of assignments is that the case and if so what are they? Yeah, I've never quite done anything like this. I I, I you know you, you say yes because the company asks you and it's important to them and it's a great opportunity and it's fun, but I've never done three big college football games within the US Open framework. They're all three within the two weeks of the tournament. Um, I've left to call games and come back. I've juggled the two sports. It, it's second nature now. It's still challenging, but you learn how to manage your time, but never three games. So Utah, Florida on August 31st is a Thursday night game in Salt Lake. It's a really compelling non-conference matchup. That's day three of the Open, right? Or day the game is actually played day four, but I, I will do Monday, Tuesday, tennis, Wednesday, travel, Thursday, football, red eye, Friday, tennis, Saturday, we, we get in position to call LSU Florida State, uh, which is my favorite game of the opening weekend in Orlando on Sunday night in primetime. So out the open for two more days to do that. Quickly back Monday through Friday at the open. Men's semis are Friday. Saturday, uh, they want us to do uh, the Texas-Alabama game in Tuscaloosa, rematch of a great game a year ago. And, and so... That, that's big enough to warrant missing um, the U.S. Open women's final. 
and going down to Tuscaloosa to call the game, hustling back immediately after the game to be in position for the men's final. So, again, it's a blessing, but I'm not uh, cocky enough to say that it isn't a daunting challenge to do all that stuff. So, listen, this obviously, these are incredible assignments, great responsibilities that you're, you know, that you want to do. So it's not really a question of whether you want to do it. Of course you want to do it. That said, like there has to be some kind of strategy that you're using in terms of preparation. So um, what is it for you? Do you like shut tennis down the two days or the night before the college football game? Or as I know some broadcasters who are like you, who are versatile, who call multiple things within the same time period, do you just, do, do you just, you do overall preparation of both at the same time and you let your, you know, muscle memory as a broadcaster come through. How do you do it? You can't do it without doing it in advance. Um, I, I've, I've been preparing for those three football games already, especially the first two. Um, you know, the, the first two that fall on, on, on a Thursday and a Sunday. So had conference calls with Utah players yesterday, way earlier than we normally would. Um, I'm going to Gainesville, Florida and Tallahassee in, in person on a little road trip with Holly Rowe to see, to see practices, to talk to coaches and players and do the kind of preparation that's really hard to do when you parachute in just before a game. I mean, no, there's no illusion. It's not ideal preparation for these football games to come in as late as we are. You want to get there normally, see a home team practice, get settled in, um, and then have plenty of time to talk to the road team when they get to town. We'll still, we'll still be able to do most of those things. But, you know, the, and you look at what, what uh, Kirk Herbstreit's had to do, juggling all these assignments. We all know that you are cutting corners. There's no way around it. You can't deny that. You just have to be experienced enough to know how to use your time efficiently so that every minute is contributing to the show and it's not wasted. And you do learn that over time. I mean, I'm doing football during the U.S. Open every minute. I'm not calling a match, okay? So I do two matches a day typically. You do a first match in between afternoon and evening. You hope there's a gap. I'm back in the bus with my football chart or I'm on the phone with Nick Saban or something's going on to get ready. So you have to compartmentalize to be able to pull it off. And it helps to have done it many years. You and Herb Street have done uh, the the Saturday game now, I think, for 10 years. You and Kirk have worked together in some form or fashion for 28, uh, including uh, obviously college game day. You know, it doesn't seem like a big leap to sort of make this assumption, but I would think if you have this these kind of assignments in such a short amount of time, it has to help that you already have familiarity with your partner in the booth and familiarity with the production crew. Is that correct? Yeah, and familiarity and trust. Yeah, you think about that number. Like I, it, it, you throw it out there, and I, I, I've quoted that many times, but that is mind blowing, dude. In terms of uh, in terms of a college football partnership, I mean, somebody would have the stat. I don't know if there's a longer one. I don't think there is. I mean, you talk about broadcast partnerships, period, on, on like a national level. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really waste time wondering where, where that stands in the record books, but it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, you think about the, the players we're covering, you know, their lifespan is seven or eight years shorter <laughs> than what we've been, how we were working together. That's right. And it, it, it's a privilege. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, Total trust between us. We know how each other thinks. We know we're going to approach a game. We do games with shockingly little conversation about the game. I mean, people don't understand that that just doesn't happen in this sport. I mean, I, I'm not even saying it's perfectly ideal. At this point, our schedules are so busy. We don't get a lot of FaceTime with each other during the week. Um, a lot of times, first time I see him, we'll show up in the bus as kickoff is approaching on, on Saturday evening. But we, we admit it works because of what you said. We, you, when you have that many fall Saturdays together and, and you know how each other sees the sport and sees the game and how he approaches his job and, and he prepares like no one. So the trust I have with him, the, the finish your sentence kind of thing doesn't mean it's always seamless. We have our moments where we step on each other and, but that's going to happen no matter how many years you work together. It's, it's just been so much fun and, and so comforting um, and such a change from tennis, I love the variety of working with with that that stable of analysts you mentioned and others, and and maybe doing matches like two in a day with very different personalities. And they go to football, and it's 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 basically the same guy <laughs> all the time. So it that that contrast is really fun for me. 
You are a Col- uh, Colorado alum, University of Colorado, obviously one of the more well-known people for sure. Um, you also have this job and responsibility where you call major college football. Uh, we've never seen, I feel like, an offseason like we've just seen in terms of all this realignment stuff. You're going to call whoever you're going to call, and certainly for the national championship, you know, you may end up uh, you know, calling like a, a, a Big Ten team or whatever, even though ESPN – um, no longer has the rights to that. But um, as one of the sort of prominent voices in the sport, um, what's your assessment of like what you've seen over the last three months? Unimaginable. I think you, know, you, you could say, ah, we saw this coming, but you didn't see it coming quite this way, quite this speed. Most people didn't thought that this would, this process that we've seen unfold in a few months would take a much longer period of time. Um, you know, listen, it, I've learned a long time ago not to, get stress and, and anxiety and anger about things I can't control. Um, I love the sport. So it makes me uneasy and uncomfortable and sad on some levels what's happened. But at the same time, what's the point in wallowing in that? Because the, the expansion and realignment opens doors to all kinds of things. You have to be able to document it. You have to be, um, you know, sober and, and, and clear minded about it and not get caught up in emotion. And I, you know, Listen, I love the Pac-12. It sucks for me that that conference is dissolved the way it did. And Colorado obviously was central in that. But, but it, it, in some ways, it strips away the, the veneer of the sport. And it is all about self-interest and money. And, that, and it has been for a long time. They just pretend that it's about other things. And, and you know, tradition and nostalgia have been central pillars of the popularity of college football. I love those things as much as anybody. But that doesn't matter anymore. Right, that they're not selling those things. You can't sell that, but other sports haven't sold it either. I mean, the NBA, the NFL—they're not about nostalgia fundamentally. They're about what's going on this moment in their sports, and I think college football has, has joined that. Now, you can't sell tradition and nostalgia and stability because stability will not exist in the sport, even going forward. Um, stability is just is not possible. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I want to get to the NFL uh, and your upcoming assignments, but before I do... I should just sort of ask you as a point of order, you would not be doing college football and you would not be doing the NFL if you were not an ESPN employee. Therefore, (laughs) one would make the assessment that as has at least been reported, but by the way, and it's important for my listeners to know this, never uh, publicly comment on by Chris. He is one, given someone in my position who's covered this a long time, just not a guy who publicly comments on his contracts and his status and stuff like that. But Chris, it seems very clear that you have signed some kind of contract extension with ESPN. Is that accurate? Yeah, I guess it is accurate. <laughs> of course it's accurate. <laughs> but again, I, I'm always wary because, first of all, I'm a private person. And I don't, think it's, I don't think a lot of stuff is anybody's business. But also because I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to say when I'm supposed to say it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, we've just discussed all the things I'm preparing for. The old contract expired in July. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a free agent out here, so I think it's a reasonable assumption to make. <laughs> okay, appreciated. Um, the again, another assumption would be that as part of your new deal, you will be calling tennis, college football, and the NFL. A is that accurate? B is there anything else as part of what your portfolio is? Well, there's always the possibility to do other stuff. Yeah, I mean that that is accurate. Um, I'm very, very excited about uh, being involved in calling five NFL games. I think that you look for new challenges and, and new reasons to kind of 
stay energized. I, I mentioned how grateful I am to do my my two favorite sports. The NFL is football at the highest level. And I, I'm a huge NFL fan. I've been an NFL fan for a long time. You you, you watch it and and differently when you're calling games. But you know, I, I have great appreciation. I'm excited about it to work with Dan Orlovsky and Lewis Riddick. And this production team is very cool for me. It's it's challenging. But I think if you're not willing to embrace challenges at whatever stage in your career and understand that, you know, being a little bit uncomfortable with being put in a situation that's new or different creates growth, um, creates the need for improvement. Um, I've done a grand total of two NFL games, both of them extremely challenging preparation uh, situations. Um, one of them that was the, the, the day after the two U.S. Open finals at <laughs> MetLife in 2020 in the COVID year in an empty stadium. The other one was two days before the national championship game in Indy when, when uh, Kirk and I called the Chiefs Broncos. But, I mean, those experiences were, were really enjoyable. Um, I know you don't mind getting granular. I, I don't want people to take this the wrong way. But if you've done years and years of calling college football, the NFL, although it's challenging and different, is, is in some ways, quote, easier. Understand how I mean that. The tempo isn't the same. The players involved are far fewer. Um, the support system to get you ready to call that NFL game from the league and at ESPN is spectacular. And, you know, and, and also you've, you've seen a lot of these guys that you, that you watch on Sundays as college players and you know them. Our, our, our first game, I get to visit with Bryce Young again, right, who covered at Alabama, got, got to know pretty well when he won the Heisman Trophy and, and, and again last year. And then we got Joe Burrow in week two. So that's very, very cool for me. And I, I, don't, I approach anything new, Richard, the same way, I, with, with genuine enthusiasm, but no false authority. I'm not going to come on there and pretend that I'm an expert on, on the NFL. That would be insulting to people who live that world 365, okay? So, but I will bring to it, you know, a, an enthusiasm for the sport. In some ways, football is football. And, and so it, it's not a completely new experience, but I think the rhythm, the tone is a little different. I, I think that you, you, you get that when you watch games on Saturday and Sunday. The presentation is, is different, not just from the announcers, but from the, the production truck as well. So, again, like I said, it's something new. I love the guys I'm working with. I'm going to learn a lot from them over the course of the, the mini package that we have. But plan to have a great time. All right. So a couple of things off this. As Chris mentioned, he has um, Saints-Panthers week two. Rams, Bengals, week three. ESPN, uh, for people to know, as part of their new NFL deal, now have double headers um, throughout the year. There's also, Chris, from what I understand, um, you'll be doing the internet. That your group will be doing the international game, Falcons, Jaguars in London, correct? So that uh, um, you know, you are a bomb vivant when it comes to travel. So this is a nice little uh, trip to London. I would think that you'd be excited about that. Very excited because when you do Wimbledon. You don't get to London that That's much. correct. <laughs> People don't know we stay out in Wimbledon Village, which is, you know, it's about five miles, but it's about an hour in traffic to get back and forth to central London. <laughs> you got to take so the tube. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take I'm going to take London in, man. I'm, I'm I'm excited for the game, but I'll get over there really early and, and hang out in the city. I think our entire crew, I think, is excited. I, I've seen a lot of stuff at Wembley from from massive soccer games in the Champions League and European Championships and Premier League and some great concerts there. I've seen um, the Yankees and Red Sox play a baseball game there before Wimbledon. So it'll be really, really neat to be in the booth and, and, and call an NFL game from that place. Have they, it, it's, it may be too early for this, but do you know what you're doing week 18, which is another doubleheader, or do they not tell you that yet? The flex game, I, they don't know. They, okay. we, frankly, uh, the last game of, the, of our package, and I think it's a similar situation for the, the main Monday booth with, with Joe and Troy, you know, they're going to have some sort of impact on the playoff picture. Right. We don't, we don't know yet what that is. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a, that's the Chiefs Broncos right. games yeah. were lucky enough to do. Kansas City was battling for home field of the top seed, I think, in the AFC at that point. So there was something at stake there, and, and there will be again. But no, it, it's it, it's an interesting thing. You do you do a couple games, actually three of them pretty early by October one. They'll have done three of the games, and then then we wait until we jump back into it in December, and then and then have that game in January. So it, it's 
it, it, it's my main thing is still college football. Let's be clear, very clear about that. But this is sort of a sidelight. It's just really a, a fun one. The um, you mentioned that um, you really have enjoyed uh, so far um, interacting with Darren Olofsky and Lewis Riddick. Um, can you give my listeners just a sense of like what that interaction has been? And have the three of you, not that you necessarily need to, but have the three of you called like a practice game or is there a plan to call a practice game? No, it's hard to align the schedules to do that. And part of it is the preparation that I'm doing. And those guys are also very busy with studio responsibilities and all kinds of things preseason. So we won't call a practice game, but I feel really comfortable because those guys are a, are a unit that have worked together. Yeah. And they, 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 and they live the, the sport 365, those two. Yeah, they do. And they have different sensibilities about it, right? They see it from different sides of the ball instinctively. They've meshed together. I think they're good buddies. Um, no three-man booth works unless all three people check their ego to some degree and are unselfish. And those guys are not selfish. We've had very you know, clear conversations. I've listened to what Steve Levy has done with them. I've liked, I've liked the sound of those broadcasts. So I feel, I feel comfortable with that. I feel comfortable with the production team. Um, yeah, we had a, a conversation, a meeting where uh, Dan and I were in New York. Lewis was on Zoom. But we, we talked about nuts and bolts. How is this going to work? What do you need from me? And I just expressed to them the same thing I tell a lot of folks I work with, Richard, that the collaborative part of this, of this job is a joy for me. I've worked with probably, I mean, hundreds of analysts in a dozen different sports, right? From X Games to all the ones we're talking about to NASCAR to other things that I, I've forgotten about. And I think that working with them letting the audience see their expertise, their experience, helping them shine, that that is a huge part of the joy of this for me, whether it's John McEnroe or Kirk or anybody else. And so these guys have a lot to offer. They are grinders in terms of preparation, massive respect for the way they show up in the booth, knowing as much about those two teams as, as anyone, including their own broadcasters and fans. So I have no doubt that uh, the, the, they'll bring it and that uh, this booth will sound really good. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. And a couple more fun ones for me. Anybody that we would be surprised in your college football world, or maybe NFL world, but really college football, because that's obviously, uh, you've done far more than that. Who's a big tennis fan? That for whatever reason, you just sort of like, I, I mean, I don't know, Kirby Smart comes up to you and he's like, hey. Chris, uh, I'd love to talk to you about uh, Jess Pagula's uh, match last night in, uh, in at Charleston. Is there anybody like uh, who, who that falls into? I don't think I've gotten a question of that depth about tennis. <laughs> right. You'd be surprised how many football coaches are huge tennis fans. I mean, some of them are just fans of the event. I remember talking to the late Mike Leach, who I was pretty close to, about, about Wimbledon. And they're fascinated by this, this global traveling circus because it's so different from from life in the sport they, where they've made their lives. But Saban's a football fan, I'm a tennis fan. I've, I've talked in the middle of football situations about, about Wimbledon. And it, sometimes they're drawn to the personalities of the greats. How did Federer, that I'll joke, stay so hungry when they achieved so much? That's a particular interest to Saban. And you see why, right? He's constantly trying to motivate high achievers. And, and so he was picking my brain about how those guys and how Serena – when, they're, when you're the most accomplished and you're still the hungriest, like how does that happen? That's not human nature. So a lot of coaches will say, now my wife is a big tennis fan. Like they don't want to admit that they're <laughs> tennis fans, but, but I'm asking for my wife now. Listen, sure you and are. they might ask something about uh, a women's tennis match or something. Yeah, that's funny. It's fun. Yeah. There's, there's crossover and, you know, and because and, and, not many people in tennis are that big of college football. Well, that was going to be my America. next question. My thought would be, one of the few people maybe who, just because I happen to know him a little bit, who may have come up to you and chatted with you, somebody like Andy Roddick, who I know was a huge oh, yeah. college football fan, who would want to talk about that. But I don't know if there's any, you know, I would always think of the American. Andy Roddick, you know, Mar- yeah. Marty Fish was a big, is a yeah, there you go. Yeah. John Isner went to Georgia. Oh, Georgia guy, so right. He, we, we, he's, we've had a lot to talk about in recent years. He's very dialed into the Bulldogs. Yeah. Um, yeah, it probably works uh, the other way. All right, uh, we'll, we'll finish up on a couple more fun ones here. One of the things that I know, Chris, that you you 
had um, throughout the course of your entire life, you've been an Olympics junkie. I think we've actually talked about this, even just sort of mm-hmm. uh, you know off uh, line, as they say. Um, you love the Olympics. You uh, you know you'll, you'll you're someone who'll watch track and field. You'll watch steeplechase. You know you're one of these you know Jim McKay hardcore Olympic. Let's not get carried away about steeplechase. I don't even know. steeple. I, what not steeplechase? What was I thinking of? I, uh, I agree with your point, but that's not yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, well, we'll 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 speak to hurdles then. Um, but the reality is, um, working at ESPN, you know, unless you were doing like sort of the Jeremy Shap position, you know, where like they'll fly somebody over to sort of be the ESPN reporter for three weeks, you're not going to get to cover an Olympics. And even though you have had like one of these 99.9% careers in terms of calling some of the most iconic sporting events, I don't know. Are you wistful a little bit of the reality of that? Like the reality is unless something changes, you may not call an Olympic games during your broadcasting career yeah i'm wistful is a good word i mean i, I don't uh, focus on it because again i can't control it there's nothing and i and i would be an idiot to be regretful about the career that i that i have but yeah i do love the olympics and in 1974 when the the uh, israeli athlete tragedy unfolded and i'm watching jim mckay yeah. 72 right post. right yeah yeah i'm sorry 72 yeah right. uh, uh i was transfixed i was nine years old that was one of the first times when I thought, wow, um, what an amazing job that would be. And so you sort of get in your mind that hosting the Olympics is what you'd love to do someday because Jim did it with an incredible humanity. And he brought those stories home and he, he, you you fell in love with the characters that they put on your screen, even if they were from a faraway land or, or competed in a sport that you weren't passionate about. You got caught up in that, the Olympic experience. And, and I, I have maintained that for a long time i i will say i think the olympics have changed a lot and um it's not quite as as innocent and pure as it used to be if it ever was but i i think that i i've over time reconciled not being able to cover the olympics i, I did get to host a world cup in south africa for espn which was an amazing thrill a taste of that kind of global sports that i love and and then obviously fox took the rights i, I was in rio as a fan uh, but Wimbledon collides with with the, the World Cup usually, so it, it's tough to do both. But I, I I'm extremely grateful to have had the experience of hosting that World Cup in a country that I really have, know a lot about and have visited a lot, and and obviously would would love to get it back. <laughs> but you know, I, I doesn't mean I'm not going to be a fan watching the World Cup, just like I'm a fan watching the Olympics. Yeah, well, I will say, I mean, I've actually said this uh, when I had Burke Magnus on a couple weeks ago on this podcast. Um, ESPN's South Africa um, coverage, the, the coverage of that World Cup to me is the best remote production your company's ever done. Uh, I think you, that, again, it's all subjective, but that you guys, you guys hit whatever sort of the navigation of telling the story of South Africa, being honest with the audience about everything that was involved in South Africa, the history of it apartheid etc while also giving beautiful coverage of the game itself like i think you didn't cheat the audience this is my opinion you didn't cheat the audience on the realities of south africa while at the same time also treating the soccer um especially given the analysts that you had particularly the studio ones like the highest quality coverage that that to me is the best thing you've ever done um some might argue others but that um that's always been it for me and you should really feel proud that you were part of that that you were you were a member of that group well, I appreciate giving your position that that analysis that we felt really proud. I don't think anybody's going to put into a production overseas what we put into that I, I, ever again. Just the reality of the dollars, the commitment that was made, so many talented people, so many hours, and the cast of characters I got to work with on the set, these global soccer rock stars that were brought together. Uh, we, we, we were not waving the flag. We weren't jingoistic. We were very global in our presentation, and I think fair about it, and I, I think that um, I, I just, those kinds of things provide you with the opportunity to collect memories that still give me chills to this day. Sitting next to Alexi Lalas when Landa Donovan scores against Algeria to avoid what would have been a disastrous result. And, and instead of not going through, they win the group in one swing of the foot. I said, I'm getting chills right now talking about it because it's, and it, you know, Alexi was almost in tears. It, 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 you just get an opportunity at one of those global sporting events, and I'm sure Tariko or certainly Costas, as many years as he did it, you still 
get the, the juice going and you still feel the emotions that, uh, like it or not, come to the surface when you, when, you, when you experience that in a different way than I think you get when you cover a league or a tennis tournament. And I, I, I do wish I'd had more of those. You get jealous of the, the, the folks who have documented like Dan Hicks calling the swimming or guys who have called the, 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 the track and field over the years, Usain Bolt. I mean, I'm right there watching. I've, I've attended a few Olympics, but man, it, it's, it's just, there's nothing like that, that, that kind of global sporting event you get to cover. And, uh, and uh, I'll never forget the chances I've had. Same, same. I mean, the, my, obviously I think if I'm known for anything, obviously writing media, but, the singular best thing that I've ever done professionally is getting to cover seven Olympics for Sports Illustrated. Being part of that team yeah. is far and away the the best thing I will have ever done and and did. So I'm 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 100 with you on that. The last uh, thing I want to ask you about is you know over the 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 course of uh, you know last couple of years, Chris, you've hosted podcasts yourself, um, which I think you've. Um, You've really enjoyed Fowler. Who you got is like a, a, the the last iteration of that. You're also somebody who you know whether it's on social media, Twitter slash X or whatever. Like you know, you'll occasionally just like flip the camera, right, and do like you know ninety seconds, uh, hundred twenty seconds on whatever <laughs> is coming to mind. You know, I think you're good at clearly at interviewing and podcasting. Is that something that as you head forward, you may get back into? I don't think you could do it in the next couple of months, just given your schedule. But I don't know. Is that something like just uh, conceptually that you could see yourself doing at some point again, where maybe you do a weekly podcast talking to just people, uh, not just in sports, but people you just find interesting? Yeah. You never want to lose your curiosity in life, right? I think curiosity is a, is a key quality for people who are successful and who enjoy life. You always want to ask questions. You're always interested in learning about things you don't know about. And that's what podcasting has offered me the chance to do because we weren't just doing sports guys. We were doing all sorts of people. And even if it was sports, we're talking about different things. I wasn't trying to be topical um, because that just didn't work. And, and it's produced sort of outside of ESPN's umbrella. So I want to be able to do things that I want to do. Uh, we, we talked about, you know, mental health and, and veterans issues and should you or should you not go to college as a young person and the guests? So it's not, it, it, they're very different episodes, but we also had, you know, Matthew McConaughey on and Cheryl Crow on and Charles Barkley on. And we had, we had a fun time. A lot of my colleagues had been on and we get pretty deep in terms of broadcasting stuff and stories. I, it's on hiatus now because this is just too crazy uh, of what's going on. So we, we, we stopped it, but um, yeah, I always, I think I want to do that. And things like Instagram, which are very different than podcasting. You, you just have a thought and you flip the camera around. And you, as you said, you talk for 90 seconds and you throw it on a reel. Um, there's, there's a lot of things I think that people respond to that are way outside of the realm of sports that I'm interested in. And so I, I don't mind that. It's, I'm not someone who does the, his best work by being immersed around the calendar. I need to get away, clear my head, unplug, you know, went to Nepal for three weeks with my brother, trekked around, put the phone away, um, did the same thing in Africa this summer with my wife. And it, you know, that helps me come back recharged. And it just makes me, I think, happier and better rounded. So the thing, the opportunity to give you a chance to show the other sides of yourself and express things that don't come I'm not going to force it. Yeah. Listen, Kirk, where, where's the hell of a game here? But let me talk about gratitude and mindfulness. And you know, you, you just that doesn't work in a broadcast. So, but those are things I like to talk about. So, I you, you can. Everybody can have their own platform, right? That's what's interesting. Uh, it's a blessing and a curse right now. Some people would say, "Well, not everybody deserves a platform. Or who cares?" Well, you know what? Then don't don't follow. Them. But, but there are a lot of really fascinating, interesting people out there that, that I follow across a broad spectrum. I get a lot out of it myself, their content. So you try to give just a little something back. All right. Again, um, Chris Fowler is uh, going to have, as he said on this podcast, a uh, quite an insane stretch over the next uh, <laughs> whatever couple months, but particularly the next 30 days. You'll see him, obviously, at the U.S. Open calling that event for uh, ESPN and all its networks there. He mentioned the college football assignments that he has three games during the U.S. Open. And then he is um, the lead play-by-play broadcaster, along with his analyst, Dan Orlovsky and Louis Riddick, 
for ESPN's NFL doubleheader coverage, which again, now with the new NFL rights deal that ESPN has, like that becomes a legitimate package of games that will exist uh, every year. Chris, it's always great to catch up. Um, uh, I have uh, immense respect for you professionally, uh, I think as you know. And um, you will be on my uh, television set essentially now, straight for the next uh, 50 days. So I will, I'll be getting a lot of Chris Fowler. Thank you uh, very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Those are kind comments, Richard. Right back at you. I enjoyed it a lot. Do it again. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chris Fowler for uh, giving me his time and uh, insight. Uh, I enjoyed that conversation a lot. If you like this kind of stuff, leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how this podcast continues. The prior podcast was Mark Spears, the outstanding uh, NBA writer for Manscaped slash ESPN. ESPN president of content Burke Magnus was a po- was a guest on this podcast uh, last week, and uh, that did some serious numbers. And uh, I think you'll be interested in that conversation. Had Men in Blazers founder Roger Bennett, podcaster Sam Mewis, podcaster Sam Mewis, U.S. national team midfielder Sam Mewis, uh, and the Athletics Rustin Dodd. They were guests uh, last week as well. Stu Mandel on the television meteorites in college football. If you're into college football. Had uh, Becky Lynch, the WWE star, ESPN's Andrea Carter, and Taylor Twelman came on to talk about Leo Messi making a difference in Miami. Uh, again, should be some stuff that uh, that you'll appreciate. Uh, Want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Want to thank everybody at Odyssey for their support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.